When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Criminal Connection podcast. My name's Terry Stone, and today we've got a mafia legend by the name of Michael Franzese. He has been in the top 50 rich list uh, for Mafia crime bosses in his reign when he was working with the Colombo crime family in New York. He's got some amazing stories. He's got his own YouTube channel and he's actually in the UK on tour. So um, welcome to the Criminal Connection podcast, Mr. Michael Franzese. <laughs> Woo! Well, that's the best introduction I've ever had. Terry. Um, Thank I just, you. just wanted to say... I've, I've actually got my shoes on because I didn't want to uh, show any disrespect. Right, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Got to keep your shoes on. <laughs> Unless you're in my house, then you take them off. But. And and as customary, uh, when, whenever I met, welcome anybody um, on the show from the Mafia, um, we, we do a, a ring kissing ceremony. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You know, it's mostly in the movies, but I've seen it done on the street too. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm going to kiss your ring, Michael. Well, yeah, uh, res respect your family. Okay. And I've got my, this is actually the Podfather ring. So, okay, well. <laughs> right, you know, you <laughs> so, so the Podfather meets the Godfather. So well, I had to come all the way to London to kiss somebody's <laughs> ring. That's cool. <laughs> Honestly, Michael, I, I enjoyed meeting you obviously last year yes. uh, on your tour. And, and we obviously had, had some time together. Um, and, and really, you know, I, I wanted to get you on the show, um, 
because obviously a lot of things have happened um, since you obviously come out of the Mafia. There's a lot of things that uh, people probably don't know um, ab about you and about your life. So um, obviously I'd love to just give our audience a little introduction um, and just start off with where you grew up and um, what it was like sort of growing up with a, f a father who was obviously a mob boss himself. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, Terry, before I do that, I just want to say, when I was here a year and a half ago and we met, I was on tour, and the people here were so welcoming and just so terrific. I fell in love with the whole United Kingdom. And so we're coming back on tour, coming in March, yeah. and I think we're doing 11 cities, but so looking forward to it, and I just want to thank everybody that's viewing today uh, for just really opening up your arms and welcoming me. We, uh, we're real excited about it, so uh, that's that. Yeah, it, it was different, Terry. My dad was a very high-profile figure. Uh, he was the underboss of our family, the Colombo family, always under investigation, major target of law enforcement. So I grew up as a kid uh, basically hating the police and hating law enforcement because my dad was my idol. I loved him. Yeah. He was my hero. And I always saw them were around us all the time, harassing the family, harassing my dad, arresting him. He's going to trial. It was very, you know, tumultuous, I would say. So that's kind of the environment that I grew up in. And uh, originally, my dad didn't want me to go into the life. He wanted me to go to school, be a doctor, stay off the street, get an education. And I was on that road until he got in some serious trouble. He was indicted three times in the state of New York, twice for grand larceny, once for murder. Wow. Went to trial, was acquitted in all three cases. Gets indicted again in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. He gets convicted, sentenced to 50 years. Terry was the longest sentence for a bank robbery conspiracy case ever given up to that point. He allegedly uh, ordered the bank robberies. And, um, you know, when he got indicted like that, I said, Dad, bank robbery. And he looked at me and he said, son, I was framed. I'm no bank robber. I didn't order this, these uh, bank robberies. I don't even know the, uh, the people that are testifying against me. Oh. And Terry, I will say this. I, you know, eventually pled guilty to a crime I was guilty of and went to jail, did my time. And my dad did a lot of bad things on the street. I'm not sugarcoating that. But that particular crime that he did 40 years in prison for, my dad was innocent of. No bank robber. I'll take that to my grave. Investigated that case, everything else. So there was a real bitterness in me at that point in time. And Joe Colombo, who was a boss of my family, he kind of took me under his wing. We obviously knew the family well. And... Um, I started meeting a lot more of my dad's friends. Mike, what are you doing going to school? Your father was framed. If you don't help him out, he's going to die in jail. Because he was 50 when he went in. Wow. If he had 50 on top of that, it's a death sentence. So I visited my dad in Leavenworth Penitentiary and said, Dad, I'm not going to school. I was 19 years old. I said, if I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. And, you know, he was disappointed because he wanted that for me. But he knew my mind was made up. And he said, son, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. So at that point, he proposed me for membership into the family. And wow. That's how the street life started for me. I mean, do you think, Michael, obviously going back to, to, to growing up in the mob, obviously you, you, you had a hate, hatred for the police because, you know, for you as a kid growing up, you probably felt like you was being harassed. Every time you come out of your house, there's someone taking pictures, there's people following you. But do you think... Um, that was a sort of when you were saying about your dad being framed. Do you think that was literally they knew he was the underboss, they were getting him? Do you know what I mean? And 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 it didn't matter whether they could get him legitimately 
or by framing him, they were they, he was a target. They was going to take him down. No, no doubt. You know, and I always say the difference between you know normal police investigations is there's a crime that's committed, and then the police investigate or law enforcement investigates to try to find out who the perpetrator was. Yeah. In organized crime, mafia, Cosa Nostra, it's just the opposite. They're investigating the person and hoping to find the crime that he's committed. So they don't know what he did. You know, they're trying to find out. And along the way, you know, they cut corners and uh, listen, if they want you, you know, and you have that bullseye on your back, they're going to figure it out. Whether yeah. whether it's you're innocent or not, they're going to get you. Some, someone said to me something that was profound. Um, they said, you know, if you are in the life, whether you're in the mafia, whether you're a criminal, but if you are you know, committing crimes. Um, there's a lot more law enforcement. There are you. They've only got to get lucky once. You've got to get lucky. Exactly. <laughs> 100%. Uh, I mean, listen, in my own case, I, I was indicted seven times. Wow. I beat my father by three. You know, he got four. <laughs> I had seven. And um, Have you told him that? That huh? I beat you. Oh, yeah. We used to laugh about it. I said, I beat your daddy. He said, that's not something to be proud of. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I went to trial five times and beat every case. It was either acquitted or dismissed until finally I pled guilty on it. I mean, how many times are they going to come after you? You know, until they until they got you, you weren't going to rest. Yeah. That I mean, it. I mean the the going back to obviously when you decided to go into the life. Um obviously there's loads of you know things where people say, you know, to to become accepted into a mafia crime family, you have to make your bones. Uh, you have to go through this ceremony, like you said earlier when we when we made the joke about kissing the ring, and you said that's only in the movies. Yes. When you actually put the the the, the myth to one side, um, what, what what because your father was already in the life, was 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 there any sort of exceptions for you, or was or do you just have to go through the same process? No, you got to go through the process. After uh, and I'm going to be very honest because I like to be as honest as I can with the audience. Um, you know, my father asked me one question during that meeting, and he said to me, son, i got to ask you something that's very serious. And I said, what's that, Dad? He said, if you ever had to kill anybody, could you do it? And, you know, I thought about it for a minute, and I said, yeah, Dad, under the right circumstances, if I had to, I could. And uh, he said, that's the right answer. And then he said, go home. Somebody will be in touch with you. Do what you're told. That's it. You know, he didn't break it down for me. He didn't say this is what's required of you, nothing, because— one of the many things I respected about my dad, he never brought what was going on in, in the outside world into the house. In the house, we were a family. He tried as best wow. he could. And, you know, that life is a secret life. And you're not supposed to talk about it with anybody outside of the life. My dad wouldn't do that even with me, his own son. He just knew I had it in me. Go home and do what you're told. So two weeks after that meeting, a captain in the family picked me up, a cop regime, and took me to see the boss. And uh, Joe Colombo had been shot and seriously wounded. He eventually died from the wounds at a big rally that we had, which is another whole story. That, I remember that because he, he um, and, and this is my understanding of it, um, obviously he, he, was, he wanted to do that pro-Italian uh, movement. Yes. Um, and I think obviously a lot of the mafia crime families at the time obviously didn't like it because he was obviously the boss yeah. and he was bringing heat on the life. A lot of heat, yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, unfortunately, you know, suffered for that. It's another whole story what really might have happened. Mm. But uh, I was like 12 steps away from him when the shots rang out at this big rally we had in New York. And uh, so a new boss took over, and his name was Tom DeBella. Tom has passed on now. I sat with Tom. Mike, I have a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of this life? Yes. 
Uh, here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, <clears throat> excuse me, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. That means if your mother is sick and dying, you're at her bedside. We call you to service. You leave your mother, you come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. And when and if we feel you deserve this privilege, you've earned it uh, to become a member, we'll let you know. So I had to go through the same process. But here was a little bit of the difference with me. When I got straightened out, made, in 1975, prior to that, they had an expression that the books were closed, meaning they weren't bringing new guys into the family. This was from the mid-50s or the early 50s right through the mid-70s. Reason for that was security reasons. The only way you were able to make a new guy is if somebody died in the family, you could replace them. But in the mid-70s, they opened up the books, and now they're bringing a lot of guys in. So I kind of jumped ahead I mean, I spent two and a half years as a recruit and had to prove myself and do whatever I had to do, but I jumped ahead of guys that might have been waiting 20 years out of respect for my father because my father said, I need my son. You know, yeah. I'm going to die in here if he doesn't help. So they moved me ahead of a bunch of guys. I was one of the first guys to get straightened out again, but I had to prove myself. You know, yeah. you don't get any passes in that. Uh, but that's that's the way it went for me. And, and, and when you say, obviously, prove yourself, was it literally like they bring you up at three in the morning and say, Michael, go and do that, just to see if you'd actually do it. Because obviously, yes. yeah. So yeah, they, I mean, right. you had an order, you had to obey it. No oh. questions asked, no anything. You and, know? If, and if you disobeyed, would you be just You're gone. goodbye? Or would it be like met with violence or, or death? Or would it just be like goodbye? No, well, he, no. if I would have... If I would have had an order, serious order, and I said I'm not doing that, that would have been the end for me as far as becoming a member of that life. Mm. It could have been a lot more serious because if if I wasn't my father's son and I'm just a street guy and I said I don't want to do this, well, now they say, well, we ordered him to do this and he didn't want to do it. Is he ever going to talk about it? Is he going to say anything? So it could be serious. Yeah. You can't you can't defy an order in that life. And if once you're made you defy an order, then that would result in death. Absolutely. Look. There's certain things, Terry, that we had rules and policies that you couldn't break. Number one, don't ever violate another made man's wife, daughter, sister, mother, cousin. Forget it. That's death. Could be death. Don't ever raise your hands to another made man, no matter what the circumstances are. You can't do that. Death. During our time, you couldn't deal with drugs. We were told straight out, you deal with drugs, you die. You know, obviously you can't become an informant or betray, and when you found out and you're still on the street, you're gone. So there's certain things that are uh, very strict rules and very severe consequences. Most people, um, obviously via the movies, uh, there's this kind of romance of, of the life. And, uh, you know, most people go, oh, you know, I'd love to be in the mafia. You know, I'd love to, you know, live the life or, or be involved with these people, you know. But but then when they actually you know if you if you go and work in an office, or you or you work for a business and you get told to do something, you say I want to do it, you might get told off or you might get fired. But right. it doesn't end in death. No. No. <laughs> so I think obviously when people actually hear the truth that if you go into that life and you do break the rules, that it is going to probably end in your death. <laughs> it's not yeah. it's not for everyone, right? No, Terry. You know what? It's a it's a very tough life to navigate um, because you're always you got two things to worry about, you know. You got law enforcement uh, that's that's after you, you know, uh, and it could be pretty constant depending upon how high your profile is, how important to them you are. Um, so you got that to worry about, and then you got to stay in line on the street. You can't make mistakes, you know. That could be very costly, 
And, you know, in my case, I was one of the younger guys, and I had success in that life. And like anything else in the real world, there's resentment when you're young and you're doing well. And, you know, so you got to navigate a lot because there's a lot of treachery in that life. And you have to know how to navigate. I say this, you know, if you're a made member of that life and you die of old age and you die free, you've really accomplished something because wow. it's a tough life to Is navigate. there many people that have done that? Well, you know... During my era, you know, unfortunately, Terry, I've seen a lot of death. Um, you know, guys made mistakes and things happened. And our family happened to be, uh, we were a warring family. I mean, in my lifetime, we went to war three times, you know, civil war. So it, it happens. But, you know, the other thing is, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, there's a mistaken impression out there that every day we'll go out there and we're, who are we going to kill today? Who are we going to baseball bat today? Are we going to this, right? There's some guys on YouTube saying, well, I killed 50 guys. I'm saying, you don't kill 50 guys in Vietnam, you know? <laughs> Where are you going to find 50 guys to kill on every day, you know? It's crazy. It, 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 it wasn't that way. The oath of omerta that we take when we're straightened out is, is not an oath to lie, steal, kill, cheat. It's an oath of silence, meaning you're never even supposed to admit the life exists. That's what you're saying. But as a part of that life, yeah, we lie, we steal, we cheat, and sometimes we kill. So it's yeah. part of the life. But, um, you know, I don't want to give the impression that every day we're running around killing people. That's not true. No. You know, and murder in that life, I'll bring it up because it's fascinating to people. One of the main questions I get asked, Michael, did you ever kill anybody? You know, every time I do a Q&A, it's always number one or two question. <laughs> and people are fascinated by that. But murder was taken very seriously in that life, very seriously. Only the boss could approve it. And it was talked about. It's not like, oh, go out and kill this guy. No, well, if he did something, let's talk about it. Somebody might have stood up for him. Other people said no. A judgment was passed. The boss made a decision. So that's how it went. It wasn't like you see in the movies that just say, yeah. kill this guy, kill that guy. It wasn't that way. And if, and if somebody was, if the order's given, like they're going, um, was it um, a public execution where they would just shoot them and just leave them on the floor or they'd find them somewhere or would it be a proper hit where they take the body away and it would never, never, never be found? It really depends. You know, um, people had their own methods of doing things, so to speak. If you talk to about a guy like Roy DeMeo, I don't know if you ever heard of Roy. Yeah, yeah. You know, Roy, I don't like to talk bad about people. And I knew Roy and I got along with him. You know, I had a couple of funny incidents with him, actually. But um, Roy was a serial killer. You know, Roy would have been a killer whether he was in the mob or not. It's just who he was. And, you know, he was a Joe Pesky character. <laughs> yeah, I, and you might have heard of the Gemini method of, you know, he had that club, the Gemini, and guys would go in there and he'd shoot him and chop up the bodies and dispose of them. I mean, it's gruesome stuff. Well, that, 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 was that when they put him in the vat of acid? Yeah, they put him in a vat of acid or they dumped him. In, you know, who knows? I mean, it's you don't even want to talk about it. It's that unpleasant, <laughs> but that's who he was. And... You know, when guys are like that, usually they have a bad ending. And Roy had a bad ending. They found him in the trunk of a car. So, you know, people don't like people that behave like that because they're just too dangerous. But, you know, other times it depends. Like if you got an order and you're saying, hey, this guy's got to go, it's up to you to put the team together and do it the way you want to do it. Got it. You know, right. so. And, and obviously in your heyday, you, obviously you, you made it on the Mafia Rich list and you was earning you know, eight million a week. I mean, that is a lot of money. I mean, you must have been uh, the, the, like a mafia superstar. I mean, you know, for, for because people must have looked at you back then, and and you know, if they were selling drugs, which they weren't supposed to be doing, 
uh, they were looking at you and going, wow, this guy's not actually selling drugs. He's actually doing this. And he's earning probably a lot more money than we are selling drugs and not taking as many risks. So um, I'm sure that obviously bought a success and, and, and a claim, but also aggravation where, like you said, you had the jealousy coming in. Yeah, um, it, it did. I mean, I was fortunate. I knew how to use the life to benefit me in business. And I brought some things into the family I hadn't done before. And I was very aggressive on the street, Terry. I worked 24-7. It was, uh, I just was very motivated to earn money. And, um, you know, but... What could I say? I mean, it, I got uh, uh, elevated to the position of Capo Regime because we were bringing in a lot of money to the family. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you get a lot of resentment, you know, people. I mean, I had my own jet plane. I had a helicopter. I had a house in Florida, a house in New York, a house in Marina del Rey, California. I had, like, 300 guys under me. I had the Russians that were involved with me. They were part of my crew. So, you know, we had a lot going on, and you, you get noticed. I mean, obviously. if I, I mean, you know, I think at that period of time, anybody that knew you would have probably gone, "I want to be Michael when I grow up," because they'd have seen what you've got, they'd see the success, they'd see the money, and uh, you know, and I suppose in in a way, it's a dangerous thing because uh, you know they probably don't realise what you've done and what you do to obviously get to that position. And when you was at that position, Michael. Um, he was probably obviously thinking, wow, you know, I'm a captain now in the family. Um, do I become an underboss? Do I become the boss? Did you ever think about that? Or, Well, you know, it was more, you got to understand kind of the politics of the family. My dad was very powerful during his time. Obviously, that diminished somewhat from being imprisoned all, all that time. And... Um, but there was a faction of the family that was loyal to the Franzese part, right? And then there was the other faction, the Persico part. And he was my boss eventually. And um, my dad had it in his mind. He said, son, I'm grooming you to take over this family at some point. So that was his desire because then we would be back in power. If my dad don't go to prison, when Joe Colombo gets killed, he becomes a boss. There's no right. doubt. So prison, you know, stop that. So he had it in his mind. Terry, I'm going to be honest with you. That's a lot of work to be the boss of a family. Mm -hmm. And here's my situation. I'm making all the money I ever need. I'm, you know, in my jet plane going down to Florida where I had a house, living on the Intracoastal with two boats in the backyard. I run out to California. I had a film company out there making movies. I'm having a great time. What do I want to be the boss of a family for? It's so much work. <laughs> And these guys, every day, you, you, you know, it's something going on that you got to deal with. I, I didn't want that. I, I, wasn't even, I wasn't even thrilled when they made me a captain because now I got more guys under me. They're a bunch of renegades always getting in trouble. You're always sitting down trying to bail somebody out. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And I suppose if, if, uh, if you looked at what, that, what prison time they were giving the bosses... I mean, oh. you're a boss. You'll get in a long time. Yeah, you know they want to. They don't want to let you out. <laughs> Terry, I, I'm uh, I'm on trial with Giuliani on a big racketeering case. I'm the lead defendant. I have 15 co-defendants. Right? He gives me a million dollar bail the day of my arraignment, and Giuliani comes up to me. This was in '84. Me and my attorney, and he says, Francis, if I convict you on this case, you're getting double what your father got—a hundred years. And it was a Shylocking case. It wasn't a, you know, in the scheme of things, it wasn't that serious. Nobody got killed. This and that. Shylock in case, right? Um, I beat the case. But some of my co-defendants convicted. They got 30 years. So I'm the lead guy. I would have gotten at least 50. At least 50. And who needs that? In England, um, 
you know, if if you go to jail in England and you get a 10-year sentence or a 20-year sentence, obviously you don't really do the time unless it's a recommended time. So in America, is that similar? Or if you get 50, you do 50? No, you do 85%. I would say There's no parole. Got it. So on 50, you're doing 40 plus. Wow. On 20, you're doing 17 and a half. That's crazy. No more parole. Wow. And you're lucky if you get bail now. They have Bail Reform Act, you know. You're either a danger to the community or a flight risk. They make sure you're one of the two. Okay. So you get no bail, right? <laughs> the minute you're locked up, you're in jail. Yeah. Then the Sentencing Reform Act, they're crazy. They, they do it. They have a multiplication table. It's just crazy, man. And, and obviously, you, you mentioned about <clears throat> the movies um, in California. And uh, I had, a, I had a, a really good friend uh, called Wolf Pine. And uh, Wolf Pine, uh, back in the sort of 60s and 70s, he was a manager of uh, Black Sabbath with oh, Don Arden. Right. And uh, they had a connection with Joe Pagano. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he actually got into the life and he was the only Englishman ever to be really in that life. And mm -hmm. he did actually write a book which was published just before his death called The Englishman and the Mafia. Mm. Um, and the author of that book was John Pearson who wrote <clears throat> The Profession of Violence, which was about the Cray Twins, which oh, okay. uh, was a big, you know, famous uh, book, probably one of John Pearson's best books, I'd really? say. Um, and uh, Wolf obviously said to me about... Um, Jay Pagano, he talked to me about Jay Cusimano. He, he, I met uh, Bubbles LaRue, as he was known. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, I, you know, I don't know if you know, but they made a movie called The Cotton Club. Oh, I do. Yeah. Uh, was jo you involved in that? I wasn't involved, but right. I knew Joey while that was being produced. Yeah. yeah. I love Joey Cusimano. He's yeah. a dear friend, and uh, he's in Vegas now, and I, yeah. I love the guy. Yeah. He, he um, I, I'm, I'm out with him, and, uh, when I was in Vegas, but obviously we couldn't meet yeah. at a casino. We had to meet. Yes, he can't go into He's barred from the casino. Yeah. It's fine. And, and uh, we were talking about, obviously, the movies and uh, the fact that he'd done a cotton club. And, uh, you know, he's obviously massively into his tennis. Um, and and he, was, he, he told me some great stories. Um, obviously, a lot of people that have watched this will have seen Casino. Mm -hmm. They will um, go, wow, you know, it was based on a true story and, you know, who was Joe Pesky? And obviously mm -hmm. everyone knows that was Anthony Splotro, yeah. who was also with with Joey, and and they were all connected. And what, when when uh, you know when, when you actually hear these stories, um, you know it is it is crazy. I mean, when Vegas um, started, it was just literally a desert with a a couple of like cowboy ranches and right. <laughs> exactly. And you fast forward to now, and it's just like wow, it's just crazy. And the way it grew, and 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 the. Uh, was the Colombo family had any interest in Vegas? Not really, you know, not not a main interest. I mean, I did some stuff there, you know, early on, um, uh, you know, mostly with uh, the Dunes, which was back then it was one of the New York places. Yeah, you know, it's not built up like now. You had the Dunes and you had Caesars, obviously, where a lot of New Yorkers would go. Yeah, uh, but let's face it, you know, we built Vegas. Yeah, there's no question. Absolutely. We built Vegas. And it was run a lot better when we had it than it is today. Today, everything's corporate, all, you know. And everybody says that. Yeah. Everybody that was around during that era says it was so much better back then than it is today. Well, Sinatra was obviously a big part of that, wasn't he? And, yeah. Uh, um, and, and what what I loved about uh, Vegas, you know, the first time I went, um, I was out for the boxing. And Will mm -hmm. said, oh, while you're in town, make sure you, 
you know, speak to these people right. and meet up. And I, I met Joey and uh, I met Bubbles and uh, he was mm -hmm. telling me some great stories. Um, and uh, we, we had a laugh and, and Bubbles was uh, running the door at the Crazy Horse. Um, That's right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. when I when I went up to the door, it's actually quite funny because uh, I, I he said he looks like Pussy from The Sopranos, right? So when yes, I turned yeah. up, yeah. I was like, "Is uh, Bubbles around?" And then this guy come out and he went, "Yeah." He goes, "He goes, Are you Terry?" And I went, "Yeah." And he goes, "How's Ronnie and Reggie?" So <laughs> we we had a bit of a laugh, um, but then obviously later on, it turned out that that was actually been yeah. I mean, I don't know how much truth was in it, but it was a. Uh, a mob front in Vegas and, and it, it got shut down. And I think that everybody got indicted. I think he got indicted yes. as well. Yes. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, I, I used to go to Vegas probably once or twice a year for the boxing. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we'd always go out and have a laugh and have a drink. And, and obviously Wolf at the time was, <clears throat> he's, he's no longer with us either, but he was very sick. He, he had like heart disease. So mm. he never... Went, went back over there. I think mm. he had his sort of 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, he told me a funny story about Joe Pagano. Uh, he, he said that um, Joe said, oh, you know, that woman you're marrying, you're going to marry this woman. And he was like, well, yeah, okay, but, you know, I'm, I'm in England. And he went, no, no, you're going to come to New York and you're going to get married to her in New York and we're going to pay for it. And he was like, why? <laughs> and he said, well, we're going to have a meet. But he said, you're going to get married. Oh. <laughs> so yeah. he had this like big wedding in New York and there was all these like mafia guys who were having meetings on these yeah. tables under the guise of... Uh, I've gone to a yeah, wedding. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, his, his book, he left a lot of the stuff out in his book that, that, that he shared with me because I was going to obviously make it into a movie because I right. thought, what a great story about an Englishman and the mafia, you know. But mm -hmm. the book was, was really edited down and, yeah. and uh, to the point where... And I said to him, I said, why haven't you put all the stories in the book? And he said, because I didn't want to go to jail. <laughs> so I was like, and he said, I'm not an informant. You know, I'm not an informant. Right. So, and, and that was the other thing that I wanted to cover. Obviously, earlier you said when you, when you go into life, you have a, you know, you have to take this like a pledge, you know. Yeah, um, and, and it's not just someone saying, yeah, well, I'll do it. It's, it's a real thing. Um, yeah. And obviously there was a lot of uh, informing going on. Um, and, and there was a guy that I met. Um, you all know John Elite. Um, John Elite, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Do I say it wrong? Is that John Elite? Elite, Elite. Okay, yes. okay. Yeah. I call him John Elite, but no, it's John no, Elite. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> but he, he, um, I met him because he was here, and he was obviously looking to do a film or a TV series about his life, and uh, he, he said, you know, I went into the life and I was doing hits, and you know, obviously for, for the Gambinos, and he said I, I was. You know, I didn't ever question. I just did it, right? And he said, then when I got pinched, he said, I literally went out the country on my toes and I, I went on the run. I went to Brazil. I went all around the world trying to evade this massive prison sentence I was going to get. And then when I did get caught and they took me in, he said it was literally like, you know, you're going to get nicked for this, you're going to get nicked for that. And he was sort of like, how the fuck did they know all of this stuff, Right. And he said that they actually said to me, <clears throat> the boss of this family, the underboss of this family, the captain, and literally had statements. They showed him statements that these people had made. And he was literally like, I can't believe all these people that I respected and looked up to were ratting me out. So then he said, I was like, I ain't going to prison for my for 100 years. So if they're going to rat me out, I'm going to rat them out. 
And when I heard him say that, I just thought, if you have that view where you never, right, you never speak, but then someone says to you, but you're never going to come out of jail ever again. And, you know, you're never going to see your family other than other side of a window or on a phone, mm -hmm. you know, but, but, but I think that, that made him realize or made him think, well, if they're doing it, they broke the rules. I'm going to break the rules, but I don't know what the reason, would you think it was that simple that, that, that the law enforcement used the fact that they was going to put them in, in jail for a long time to actually say, look guys, you can get out, but you've got to tell us this. They've already told us this. There's all the statements. There's all the proof. Um, so they sort of encouraged these people to sort of break the oath. Um, I'm going to tell you what really happened. The, you know, did you ever see the movie uh, The Bronx Tale? Yeah. Okay. Well, Chaz is a good friend of mine. You know, his stories about him, he wrote the script. And in that, during the movie, you remember when Sonny, played by Chaz, is asked by Kolojo, the young guy, uh, is it better to be loved or to be feared? And Sonny turns and said, it's better to be feared in my position. And I keep the guys in line and blah, blah, blah. And when I spoke to Chaz, I said, you know, Chaz, that's wrong. It's better to be loved. I said, fear kept people in check, no question about it. But what happened in our life, when the RICO statute came out, you know, and I had two RICO indictments, federal, it was so severe. The penalties were so severe and the statute was so difficult to defend it was so loosely written that it was so easy to be indicted by a racketeering act that here's what happened. Under the RICO Act, you go down on one count, you get 20 years, no parole. Usually you got five. I had, I think, nine counts, right? So that's nine times 20. You got a lot of time, right? So what happened was the government now goes to guys and they say, listen, we indicted you under the RICO statute. You're going to get convicted. You're going away forever unless you want to talk to us. Now, if you talk to us, we'll give you a break on your sentence. We'll put you in a witness protection program. We'll give you some money, change your identity. The guy you testify against is going to jail forever, so what do you got to worry about? That's what destroyed the family. The fear of the mob was transferred to the fear of the government because of the RICO Act. Nobody's going to tell me any different. That's exactly because I've seen so many guys start to turn after that statute came in. That's, that's what caused it. A lot of people say, you know, John Gotti brought the mafia down. No, he didn't. I mean, John didn't help himself because he was so out there, you know, yeah. and he thumbed his nose, but that's who he was in everybody's face. Joe Colombo, the same thing. He was as Joe Colombo was doing NBC Nightly News. Wow. Mom boss doing that, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, they were high-profile guys. Yeah. But they didn't bring the life down. They didn't help it, but they didn't bring it down. It was a racketeering act, Terry, that started the destruction of that life because mm -hmm. they— the forfeiture clauses. Do you know under the forfeiture clause of the RICO Act, if you have a, a building that you spent $10 million on, right, legit, $1 was illegal and they prove it, they confiscate the whole building. Wow. That's how severe the forfeiture act, uh, part of that statute is. So you didn't have a shot. Very hard to defend. And then to defend it, normally you get no bail. So now you're inside trying to investigate a case to try that takes so much work and you, you hardly can talk to your lawyer. So they had, they had everything in their favor. They created that act. And you got to give Giuliani the credit or the blame, doesn't, whatever side you're on, for using it so effectively. Because that law was on the books for 10 years. Nobody knew what to do with it. Yeah. Giuliani figured it out. 
And boom, that's when he started putting everybody away. That's when all the bosses went down for 100 years. 100 years. They all died in jail. At that point, do you think uh, the the life changed? Uh, for, for, for the guys that you know were still in the life, do you think it, it meant that, that a lot of them were saying, I don't want this anymore, I'm, I'm leaving? Or, or, I mean, I know the mafia still exists now. I know that the families are still doing stuff, um, obviously probably more legitimate things. Um, than than they were doing back then, but um, they've had to, to to move with the times. But um, you, I think recently there was a there was a case, wasn't there, in in New York where a load of mafia guys had yeah, there was a bust. The same stuff, yeah, shakedown, extortion, gambling, you know, gambling. Yeah, the 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 state is in legitimate gambling because they collect tax on it. But if you're gambling on the street, you go to jail for it's crazy stuff. Yeah, but you know. The guys got smarter now because, look, when I was in that life, there wasn't a day that went by, Daily News, New York Times, uh, New York Post, Long Island Press, mob story, somebody, every single day. Now, I read the papers every day from New York. I read it online. Maybe every six months, you'll see one little story. So the guys have gone on to cover. I always say this, the golden years of Cosa Nostra in my country, from the late 40s, to the mid 80s. That's when we we had it all. And then things stopped. After that RICO Act, I mean it's not n nearly the same. Yeah. Nearly the same. Do you think a lot of the the mafia guys like your father um and I'm not talking about I know it happened to you so you had to go in the life, but there was probably a lot of mob guys whose sons and daughters didn't go into the life and they mm -hmm. went to university. The dads obviously then funded their business and then helped them. So they've been out to do. Do you think that? I know this sounds like a mad comment, but the mob, mob went legit because they they still had the muscle, they still had the clout, they still had the people they could call. But that, that, that the new wave, if you like, of the mafia wasn't about having people Shylocking, extorting, robbing. It was more like let's just set up a business, let's have a chain of restaurants, let's you know have a construction company. You know, I, I haven't really seen that. I mean, and I, don't get me wrong, I don't have my hand on the pulse every day, what's going on. I got my own life now, but I haven't really seen that. But I'm hopeful that it is going that way yeah. because you can't make it on the street anymore. I mean, you just can't. It's only a matter of time before you get destroyed. So why bother? You know, if the guys are smart, they'll keep their kids out of the life and, uh, and they'll try to go legit. And when, when you was... Uh, <clears throat> See, my, if you're legit, why be part of the life? You know, yeah. you don't need it. <laughs> you know, really. So, so you've obviously got to this massive point where you're the captain, you obviously earn all this money. Um, what, when would you say it started to turn bad for you? Was it when you started getting the um, regular indictments, you was getting the regular arrests? Well, Terry, it, it turned bad for me immediately. I mean, I, my first arrest, I was 20 years old because wow. I had that bullseye on my back because of my name. Got it. You know, and I, I, went, son. <laughs> yeah, I went to trial four times before I was 23 years old. Four times. Hey, it was nailing me for everything. I, got, I beat every case, but boom. I had <clears throat> constant investigations on me. It never stopped. They had a, uh, I didn't know this until afterwards, <clears throat> I had a huge undercover uh, operation against me with me and Don King. Wow. And Al Sharpton, we, it was a whole big thing, a, a year investigation. It didn't go anywhere, but they, they really were trying to get me on that. And then they had a 14-agency task force, FBI, IRS, Queen Detective, Brooklyn DA's office. 
that would meet twice a month in the basement of the courthouse in Long Island, and their total assignment was to put me away forever. Wow. That's why I never had a day where I wasn't investigated in that life. So, you know, somebody asked me yesterday, they said, Michael, what was your day like? I said, well, you know, how did you, the the pressure? I said, well, I grew up with it, pressure. I, I didn't know anything else. I wouldn't know how to act if there wasn't pressure. <laughs> so, you know, I'm dealing with the street, trying to navigate that life. And then I got law enforcement on me every minute, you know. Uh, so that was just my daily life. And, and what then. techniques did you use back? I mean, obviously it's changed now, but back then, what was the uh, evasion tactics? Uh, well, I, I had a couple of, I had, a, uh, I had a little advantage. I had a helicopter. They couldn't follow me in a helicopter. <laughs> I would drive them crazy, right? And when I was in the gas business, I used to pick up money from some of my stations. I'd go in a helicopter, you know, in a certain place. I'd have people bring it to me there. I'd go to New Jersey. I'd go here. They couldn't follow me. It was terrible for them. But, uh, you know, I have to credit my dad, who was my mentor, who taught me a lot of things. You know how many guys went down on tapes and surveillance? Forget it. Just so destroyed. Whose apartment was bugged? Who's this? Who's that, Right. So my dad told me a couple of things. He said, Michael, he used to hold a phone in his hand and say, this is a cop. Don't talk on the phone. It's a cop. (laughs) Forget it. I never talked on the phone of anything of value, right? You know, he used to tell me, if you and I committed a crime, committed a crime, we robbed a store, we did this, we killed somebody, 10 seconds after it's done, if you say to me, hey, that went well, I said, what are you talking about? He says, never any reason to repeat anything ever, ever. Don't talk about it ever with anybody. Don't even talk to yourself, he used to say. So I never did, you know. Little things like that was so important because I never got caught on tape. No informant ever bugged me, and I had informants wired up against me for, you know, a long time. I didn't know it. Uh, So I never had those issues because I listened to my dad. You know, he prepared me for that. But... um, you know, and they still investigated me, you know, boom. And then, you know, some people turned on me in the end, of course. Yeah. That's, that's what happens. When you become that high profile and, and they want you, they'll give deals to everybody else to get you. You're the main one. At that period of time, that was in the 80s. Yeah. Um, 70s, uh, 80s, yeah. So when you looked at the, the families, there was obviously the Gambinas, there was the Genovese, there was obviously Colombo, uh, there was Lucchese and Bananas. Uh, and Bananas. And, and, if you was going to say, was there like a pecking order? Because 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 I was always under the impression that um, the, the the sort of Genovese and the Gambinos were near the top. The Colombios were sort of free and then the Chosen Bananas were like sort of underneath. But they was all powerful in their own right. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could say that because the numbers, Genovese and, and Gambinos were the two biggest families. They each had 200 plus made guys. Wow. And the Gambinos were more business-orientated. They had some guys there that were shop business guys. Same with the Genovese. Um, Columbos, we were warring all the time, you know. We had 115 made guys during my time, approximately. And then the, the, the Bananas at one time were almost broken up after the whole uh, uh, Joe Pistone, Donnie Brasco deal. Yeah. They were ready to break up that family and bring him into one of the other families. That didn't happen. They, they regained their strength. But, um, you know, nobody could tell a boss of another family what to do. They can't. I mean, they could suggest it, they could recommend it, but a boss is the boss of his family. You know, we used to say we had a commission, and there were nine bosses involved in the commission. 
of different families throughout the country, obviously five from New York. And, you know, I would liken the, uh, the commission to the United Nations. They all had talk and talk and talk, but nobody could tell the boss what to do. He does what he wants, right? Um, and so we, we were our own people in that regard, you know? And we, we, look, we had, and, you know, I think I contributed a lot to that because we, we were making a lot of money. Obviously, for, for those people that are, you know, consuming this content, and the commission was, was set up so that um, the families would all get together and literally discuss business. I mean, was there a lot of collaboration between the families? I mean, did, um, I mean, I know they used to say <clears throat> no drugs, mm -hmm. um, but obviously the Gambinos were heavily involved in drugs. And, w I mean, with all the families sort of, even though they said they weren't, they, they all indulged in it because it was such a massive money spinner or they there was people that did it but it was like they were doing it on the side yeah because remember you know when people figure oh the gambinos are big drug dealers yeah but one of the reasons Gotti was going to get killed was because his crew was dealing in drugs and castellano didn't want that castellano was a major guy that said no drugs because he was a multi-millionaire legitimate guy he didn't want drugs brought into the family too much heat so that's one of the reasons that Gotti was going to go and his yeah. crew. And then you know what happened after that. But yeah. So guys were doing it on the sneak, but we weren't cartels. We weren't major drug dealers. And if you got caught and they didn't like you, you're going down. Wow. I mean, I knew a guy that, I knew a couple of guys that got killed for drugs. You know, they, they shouldn't have been doing it. And, and, in, and, in, and in your period, of, how long was you actually in, in the life, Michael? Was you I, I spent 20 years, I would say, you know, if, 18 to 20 years. So if, you, if you've been in, in, in that life for two decades, what would you say um, was the most amount of money you've seen in one oh, place? Gosh. In cash? Not including bank accounts, because yeah. that, that goes way up. Uh, I would say about 50 million. 50? Wow. I, don't, I mean, I can't even imagine what 50 million looks like. Is it is it just a room or is it a few rooms? It, it, well... It was a lot of gas money, so tens, twenties, fives. You know, they had the gas station, petrol yeah. station. You say here, <laughs> uh, back then. So it was, it was a, it was a took up a lot of space, and we had them in boxes. Yeah, um, I'll tell you a funny story. My uh, my banker, Citibank, um, he, he was a really good guy. He was an Italian guy. His name was Rocco, right? So I was banking there, and as far as he was concerned, I was doing legitimate stuff. And he was a guy, I never really paid him, but I said, he loved to go to concerts. Don't worry about it. Who do you want to see? I got him tickets, front row seats, and I'd give him, I'd send him a place to dinner. Great guy. So one day I go into his bank. Things had changed, and I was going to have a lot of cash, right? So I said to him, Rocco, I said, business has changed a little bit for me. We're bringing in a lot of cash. I said, you got a basement in this bank? He said, yeah. I says, show me the basement. So we go downstairs, and I said, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to build you a counter. I'm going to buy you a couple of money counting machines. And let's put a safe in here, too. I says, and I want this to be my area. I said, I'll pay for everything. I'll renovate it, right? I want this to be my, my area. He said, well, Michael, how much cash are you going to have? I said, a lot, right? <laughs> so as a matter of fact, he says, well, you know, is it really going to be worth it? I says, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to deliver some here tomorrow. You tell me. So I have my guys come down with boxes of cash into the basement, right? And he looks at me, I'll never forget, he says, when are you going to start construction? <laughs> <laughs> and I actually built his basement, and we put money counting machines. I made them hire two tellers, and we had that much cash flowing through. 
And that was in in the day when that would be perfectly normal in the bank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in in England now, if you pay, I, I don't know if it's over a thousand pounds in cash in the bank, that uh, is a red flag because of the I money know. laundering stuff. Is that the same in America now? Yeah. Right. Okay. UK. Yeah, they're watching everything, and they're trying to get stricter on that. And if you uh, if you make a cash deposit or a cash withdrawal for more than ten thousand dollars. You have to fill out a whole form with the IRS and all that. And that's going to get even worse. Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't want you to deal in cash at all. Yeah. I think Biden is trying to make it uh, $600. Wow. Or something like that. Yeah. They want that's to control smart, everything. Smart from Biden. Yeah. <laughs> Terry, we won't survive another four years of well, that guy. Wow. He, he is. I, I'm going to tell you this. I'm 72 years old. He is by far the worst president of my lifetime, if not in the history of our country. Wow. He's that bad. Everything the guy touches is a disaster. Wow. I mean, I'm I'm surprised. I mean, I remember because uh, I had some some friends in New York that that obviously were were uh, uh, one of them owned all the theaters and uh, Needlander group. I don't know if you have ever met him. Mm-hmm. Um, I know who he is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was there was a uh, Jimmy, and uh, there was also uh, a lady who. All these people have passed, right? But um, uh, she she was the heir to Allen & Co., the private equity firm mm-hmm. in New York. And uh, I remember going and seeing them, and there was this massive table of people, and they was all discussing um, politics. And obviously they say, you know, the things you shouldn't discuss in life are, are politics and money. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they were talking about politics. And, and obviously I'm sat there as, a, as a, an honorary Brit, and they're all going, oh, you know, uh, they were talking about Trump and Clinton and everyone was going, oh, Clinton's a sure bet. She's definitely going to get in, uh, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever, you know, Bill Clinton was an amazing president, et cetera, et cetera. And the only person who agreed with me was, was uh, t- her name was Terry as well. And uh, she was going, you know, Trump's going to get in and this, that, and the other. And I'm going, yeah, I think he's going to get in. And they're going, yeah, you're talking out your ass. How do you know, right? You're a Brit. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I said, the reason Trump will get in power isn't because he's an amazing politician, but he's a businessman. He's made a lot of money. He's a media personality, and he says it how it is. It, and and whether you know some of the things he says are controversial or outrageous, it gets people plugged into him, and they believe that he's telling the truth. And uh, yeah. I think a lot of politicians, and this happens in this country as well. It's like they're trying to be everything to everybody, and and it's like if if. Green is a good thing to talk about, yeah, or absolutely. woke is a good thing. We're going to focus on that. We're going to make everybody happy because we're woke, green, uh, you know, whatever. But I think in life, for me, um, a politician that I would vote for is somebody who would actually say, I'm going to do these things and stick to it. And actually do it. Yeah. Like and, Trump did. Yeah. But, you know, if Biden said to me, the sun is shining, I'd bring a, an umbrella with me. Yeah. <laughs> he... he <laughs> So you don't, you've lost trust in him then, basically. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, listen, Obama warned us about him when he made a statement during his presidency, and he said, never underestimate Joe's uh, ability to F things up. Wow. Obama knew it. He said it nonchalantly during his presidency. Nobody paid attention to it. There that. you go. You can check that out as well. Oh, yeah, yeah 100%. That's a fact. I wouldn't say it if it wasn't. He said it. And uh, the guy is just the, and you know what? He just lie. The guy never tells the truth. He he makes up stories, you know. He 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 plagiarizes things, and he's just a really dishonest guy. You know, Terry. I say this. 
guys on the street had better character than him, far better character than him. It's terrible. And, and the bad thing is that he's pulling the country down. And, you know, look, he's a weak president. And, you know, when America's weak, it's dangerous for the entire world. And we're seeing that. And that's the problem. And, you know, maybe we need to get one of the Mog Bob guys involved. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, get, I get nominated all the time for president, you know. I mean, well, I, me I, and I Sammy DeBull, they Bob. said, they said <laughs> me and Sammy should be president and vice president. I'll tell you what, we straighten out the country quite because we don't give a darn what anybody said. What? I got four years here. Don't bother me. I'm going to straighten things out because I care about the people. Have you had that conversation with Sammy then? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so is he going to be the president or are you going to be the president? It doesn't matter. Well, I, gotta, I think now if you sort of already agreed. Well, you know. he, he said, I'm pulling right. rank on you because right. I was going to, I see you're not the underboss anymore. We start off equal. <laughs> well, we're, well I've, I've never met, obviously I've, I remember the stories um, and I've read the books and I, I watched that uh, strange film with John Travolta in um, about Gotti and obviously there was recently. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> Don't watch that. <laughs> if you want to see the best Gotti movie, yeah. you probably saw it. I don't know if you did. 1996 HBO Gotti with Armand DeSante and Anthony Quinn. Yeah, no. Brilliant. You saw that. Brilliant movie. They were the two of them just, oh, terrific. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy because um, for whatever reason, John Gotti, I know he was obviously, I know I called him a Teflon Don and he was, um, but, but you know, I remember uh, Wolf, he actually, because I was talking to him and I said, oh, what was... Uh, what was John like, you know? And this was when John actually went to prison. He, he actually said he was a fucking lunatic. He said he would, he was hot-headed and he would, you know, drop of a hat, he'd just do things. And then, you know, and and, and, and obviously it's crazy that um, he just decided to take out Castellano. I mean, it's just mad. I'm just going to kill him. Well, it was, <laughs> it, was uh, it was either him or Castellano. I mean, Oh, so no it, was, it wasn't... Uh, he didn't literally plan it. He knew he was going to go, so he just well, the word, Yeah, the word was that he was in trouble, him and his crew. I don't know if John was dealing with drugs, honestly, but his crew was. There's no question. And Castellano was upset, and it, it was going to happen. Gotti was going to go. So he acted first. I mean, you can't blame him. You know, the problem was, you know, it wasn't uh, when you kill a boss, you better have some people supporting you for it, like, you know, from the other families, you know. So it wasn't looked upon well. I know the Chin Giganti was very upset about it. Um, even Persigo at the time didn't like it. Um, but he had to do what he had to do. Because that that's another great character, the Chin, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know the Chin, he's, he was obviously the head of the Genovese, Genovese family. And, yeah. and, and he used to walk around in a dressing gown. bathrobe, <laughs> unshaven, hair is a mess. Like he was crazy. Talking to himself. He was crazy as a fox. <laughs> but, you know, people have asked me, Michael, do you think he was really crazy? I said, listen, you got to be a little crazy to play crazy for 30 years and get away with it. <laughs> he got away with it, right? For 30 years. Yeah. You know, but. Uh, if, he didn't have been, if he'd have been an actor, he'd have been an Oscar winner. <laughs> oh, yeah. But he was sharp. I mean, and he was a real power in New York. Chin was, right. yeah, uh, no question. And Tony Salerno, who was the, you know, the boss. Um, he wasn't just like a make-believe boss. He was a boss, but on important matters, he would consult with Chin. Yeah. And and in in your sort of two decades of being in the life, Michael, what what would you say is the the worst violence that you sort of experienced in in uh, whether you actually was experienced it firsthand or you saw it or you 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 was made aware of it? Well, unfortunately, we saw a lot of that. You know, I mean, I mean, the things that stand out in my head, obviously, the Colombo killing. Because I love Joey, and that was that was terrible. Um, 
And then, you know, I had a situation where a guy very close, he was a Jewish guy, actually, Artie, um, who was very close to my dad. He was like a second father to me when my dad went away. Well, he was brutally beaten and, and murdered. And um, I'll never forget, I was young. I was 20 years old when it happened. I walked, or 21, I think. I walked into the funeral parlor, and I was very close with the family. And his, uh, Terry, I'll never forget, his sister came over to me. The coffin was closed, and he said... Uh, she said, Michael Artie loved you so much. Look what these animals did to my brother. And she opened a coffin, and I, he was unrecognizable. And it was, it was one of the first impressions I got about that life. And I, my God, what happened here, you know? Caused me to kind of question my dad and what happened. It's a long story. And then, um, you know, a very dear friend of mine got killed uh, because he, did, he was messing around with a girl he shouldn't have been messing around with. And then I'll tell you this, you know, I had a guy around me, was around my dad, I knew him since I was a kid, and sold you for almost 30 years. <clears throat> he comes to me, he was one of my guys now, and he says, Chief, I'm in trouble. I said, what happened? He said, I got involved in a little drug deal with somebody very important that we sold to an undercover agent. And I got mad, I said, Tony, you know, and I said, but don't worry about it. I'll straighten it out. You've been a great guy for 30 years. You're going to get a pass. I'll figure it out. And he said, you know, you sure you're going to be able to do that? Because, you know, Terry, one of the dangers, and here's why, here's what happens. You don't know who to trust at that point because you make a mistake in that life and the order comes down, you're going to go. It's your best friend that walks you into a room. You don't walk out again. So that, that, I think that was, was that in Goodfellas? They actually, yeah, 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 with Joe they, Pesci. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. true. So um, I said, don't worry about it. I was, I'm going to straighten it out. He said, I've been around too long, Mike. Nobody's going to walk me into a room. And I said, Tony, you're not thinking me. I said, I love you like I know you since I'm a kid, you know. But it's in his head. So I get on my plane. I go to Florida. I was filming a movie down there. I get off the plane. I got a call from my guy, Frankie. He's Mike, you're never going to believe this. Is what? Tony went into a phone booth and blew his brains out. Wow, he done, it, done himself. He killed himself. He called his wife, I love you, blah, blah, and boom. Because he was afraid. He didn't even trust me at that point. You know? And I understood that. Because, look, you get the order. You know, it's, it's, that's, that's the horrible part of that life. And there was no reason for him to do that. I mean, it was in his own mind. Did you think he would have got a pass? He would have been... I would have fought for him. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think so. But who knows, you know? Here's why you don't know. If for some reason, here's the politics of that life that gets treacherous. If for some reason a boss wanted to pull some real rank over me and show me, no, you're not going to save this guy because who do you think you are? You know, even as a captain, you never know what's in the boss's head. Or, or oh, I love the guy, you know, we're going to get, you, you don't know, you don't know. So that's why it becomes like, who knows? I've seen things happen for politics. I'll tell you, when, when I realized what I had in the gas business, I went to my boss at the time, Persico, and I said, look, I, ha I came across a deal that I'm going to build. I'm going to show you more money than you've ever seen in your life. And he meant, we don't do drugs. I said, Come on, Joe, you know I don't do drugs. I said, it's gas. I said, but here's the deal. I said, I'm so sure about this, because I already got like 300000 in a week and a half, right? First takedown. I said, but here's the deal. I said, 
when this gets on the street, everybody's going to want a piece of it. I said, when that happens, we're going to blow it. I said, so here's the deal. You, you got to make me win every argument. I said, and don't play any politics. And I'll keep giving you money. And he looked back. I'll never forget. Show me. Well, I built up. I was bringing him $2 million a week. That makes a lot of loyalty. I never lost an, <laughs> ar I never lost an argument, Terry. Never. And everybody came at me, from Gotti to everybody. Never lost an argument. Imagine that. Is it, they're all going, but no, Michael's right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I told him, and I said, I'm going to make it easy for you. I'm going to be right. Yeah. I'm not going to make you sit down over nonsense. I'm going to be right. I said, I don't want to give anybody credit because, oh, you know, I'm in the business, you know, give me a, well, gas is like money. Yeah. Gas, you turn over in one minute, money. If you have gas in the ground, it's like having dollars in the ground. Got it. Right? So I said, we're not going to give anybody credit unless the boss approves it and you approve it. I said, so I'm never going to be wrong. You're not going to have to worry about that. And obviously, you, 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 you've done it. You've talked about it openly. So um, obviously, you can talk about it. But with, the, with the, the gas thing, what was the actual thing that you did that got you the money? What was the move? Because I'm sure everyone We were keeping the tax money. Got it. The tax so you, set up a, you set up a company. We set up a company that was licensed to collect the tax Got on it. every gallon of gasoline. And all we did was collect it and not pay it. So we had, you had at that time was nine cents a gallon federal wow. and between 20 and 30 cents a gallon state and local tax. So you had almost 40 cents a gallon wow. at that time. So we were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month. That's a lot. <laughs> Taking 20, 30 cents a gallon, you know, depend on what, what deals we made. So it was a uh, lot and of I take, money. And I take it, getting that license, that was the art because otherwise everybody would have gone, we're going to set yeah, up a company and get the license. Yeah, so, you couldn't, it was hard to get right. the, I had, I had a connection to get the license Got politically. Yeah. So that, so that, so that really was what separated you from, but then again, it, for me, what always fascinates me about anybody I've met that's lived a life of crime, they've always got an entrepreneurial side. They've always got uh, a way of making money. And, and, and it's sort of like one of the questions, you know, and, and, and obviously we'd never know what the answer is because obviously it wasn't your journey. But if you'd have not been in the life and you'd actually, did you go to university? Uh, two years. Right, okay. Yeah. And, and, and so you've gone through the education system, but then you actually set up a business. Um, you know, you'd have probably made millions legitimately. I mean, that's what I believe anyway. Well, I'm doing okay now, you know. Yeah. But, but what I mean is <laughs> yeah. back then, if, if, if I, because, I, you know, I, listen, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. People have said to me, Michael, you're a brilliant businessman. You've done this and that and everything. I'm in the wine business now. And fortunately, the, it's going very well. We're way ahead of where other small companies have been <clears throat> in the year and a half that we're in business. We're, Is this we're, in California? In, in United States. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, we're, our offices are in California. I'm in the pizza business, yeah. you know, and we're expanding big. So, um, and I'm, I don't claim all the credit for that. I have partners, but we're, we're a team. But... Um, I wasn't a brilliant bus businessman. I'm not a brilliant businessman now because there's a lot of things I don't like doing and I won't do it. I just okay. won't do it. But I had a talent. My talent was a discernment. I knew how to select a good deal because I had deals thrown at me all the time. So I had a, a, a good sense of, okay, this can work. I have to work it. And then I always say this, do what you do best, delegate the rest. So I always knew how to get the right people to do the job and then motivate them. And that's the key. 
Yeah. Because you, I don't know how to do everything. Yeah. You got to get people, especially now, these young kids and this technology. On my phone, I email, text, and I don't want to know from nothing. You know, it's so complicated. <laughs> but I got these young whizzes around me. Or my daughter, hey, Jules, I need to do this on my phone. Two minutes, she tells me what to do. My yeah. granddaughter, at 12 years old. It's unbelievable, <laughs> right? So um, I had that talent. And the same thing now. I'd be on, I got into the wine business, a long story short, because of the kid that brought it to me. And I say kid, he was 22 years old. But I was so impressed with him, and I said, you know what? I'm betting on this kid, uh, and the wine is branded in my name. It's Franzi's Wine. I said, I'm going to certainly counsel him, but I'm betting on this kid because he's, he's, his work ethic is terrific. His family is great, uh, and I really believe in him. And I was right. I picked yeah. the right guy. So, you know, the thing about the gas business that people don't understand. You, you were like the Donald Trump of, of uh, or, or the Alan Sugar because in, in America – uh, Don Trump obviously did The Apprentice, and in England, Sir Alan Sugar did The Apprentices. So you uh -huh. was like the mob apprentice when you yeah. Were went, yeah, you're hired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. That's what I did. You know, I found the right people. Okay, I, I'm betting on this guy. And then obviously you got to counsel him, watch him, motivate him. You know, that's important. Yeah. But um, the gas business, what people didn't understand, the Russians, right? They couldn't get licensed, but they were thieves, right? They wanted to make money. So they come to me. And I said, how many gallons you sell in a week? Because I had a, a, a branded station called Gas Stop, right, in Brooklyn. I had several stations. How many gallons you sell in a week? He said, well, we're doing about 10 million a month. But we can't figure out how to do the tax. I said, I'll tell you what. You take that 10 million and you write it off on my license so that I'm collecting the tax and I'll give you back a piece. So I had people coming to me and just buying the gas through my license I didn't have to have a truck. I didn't have to do anything. I would collect the money. I'd give them their end. He was like an aggregator. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we built up to, to, to uh, half a billion gallons because everybody was coming to me. Can I, can I write off on your license? And I didn't care because the money came to me. And then I paid them. And now if the money was going to them, it would have been different because then I have to worry about collecting and you got to go after people. But yeah. it came to me and I gave them their end. And, and the license was in your name? It was in our No. Right. I had 18 Panamanian companies. The reason I had Panamanian companies, I only needed a company to open a bank account. In Panama, it was bear a stock. Whoever held the stock owned the company. You, you didn't have to write down all this information like you do now, or you did back then. So we had 18 Panamanian companies. We opened up a bank account, and I was able to get the license on those companies. They were legitimately operating in the United States. Yeah. I had 18 companies that were licensed. We figured out a way, and it was a complicated scheme. Uh, I had to actually buy a terminal from British Petroleum, from BP. <laughs> I bought a terminal. I paid them $2.5 million in cash. Well, okay, I had the terminal in Oceanside. I wonder whether they declared that to the tax <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh, I, I'll tell you something even funnier. So, Because the terminal was part of the scheme that we needed in order to evade the government's collection process, right? I'm not going to get into it any further, but... So we, would we were able to keep them off our back for 10 to 12 months until they finally come down with law enforcement. They're going to close you down. Well, when we knew they were coming, we closed the office and we moved to the next license. Killed that license, moved to the next license. So basically you had... It was a daisy it was chain. Like, it was like a, a domino's effect. You had all these yes. things. When that one went, you went to the next one. Exactly. That one went. 
So, so how 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 many years did you have before? Almost eight. Wow, eight years. Eight yeah, years. they couldn't figure it out. I'm in my offices. I had a Mazda dealership at the time. I'm in my offices, and two FBI agents come in. They said, "Mike, we got to talk to you." Sure, no problem. We go outside. What can I do for you? Right. We know what you're doing, but we don't know how you're doing it in the gas business. They said, if you tell us, we'll give you a pass. You don't have anything to worry about. They're going to give me a pass, right? <laughs> yeah. I, said, I was born in the morning, not yesterday morning, right? Come in um, office, I'll tell you everything you need to know. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you know, I put gas in my car, and I, I don't know what you're talking about, right? They said, you're not going to help us? I said, guys, I have a Mazda agency. You want to buy a car? I said, $100 over cost. I said, I'll give it to you. But gas, I don't know what you're talking about, right? Terry, they got so mad at me. You're not going to help us. We just told you we'll give you a pass. I said, I can't help you guys. They walked out of there so angry because they couldn't figure it out. We were always one step ahead of them. Wow. And don't forget, too, I had some political connections back then yeah. would give me a little insight here and there what I needed to know. Right. That is, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And for me, it's, it's fun. I mean, it, it must have been fun. Like, actually, but, but again, this is what I'm saying about the entrepreneurial thing, right? Most people wouldn't have sat there and gone, I'm going to get a license, but I'm not going to get one. I'm not going to put it in my name. I'm going to put it in these companies. I'm going to have 18. I'm going to do, you know, there's a lot of planning that went into that. Yeah. It wasn't just literally like someone walks up and go, oh, we just do this thing. You know, it's so, like you said, it's so complex. It was, but it that was, was the genius of it. And uh, obviously to, to be able to get away with that for eight years. Yeah. And honestly, um, too, my partner at the time, uh, Larry Iarizzo, he, he really had a mind for this also. You know, we used to brainstorm, but he, he was kind of the architect of it. I only made it better. You know, he would say, Michael, I said, yeah, and if we do this, it'll be, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. So we would go back and forth. But he was, he was brilliant. He was a thief. <laughs> Terry, we're, at, we're <laughs> on our plane one time. We're making millions of dollars. We're on our plane. He wasn't nicking the little vodka bottles, was he? <laughs> he just loved to steal. <laughs> He got the thrill out of it. He was six foot four, 450 pounds, but he wasn't a, a sloppy fat. He was solid, right? Big guy. So we're in our plane once and we're going, I think, Florida, I don't remember. And he's on a, a phone, how, however, and he's finding out. He was, going to, he was sending one of our trucks into the, uh, the terminal to take gas, not our terminal, somebody else's, but he figured out a way to steal the gas with some phony card. You had to put a card in, right? So he's, hey, chief, we got this many gallons. I said, well, what do you need to do that for? We're making millions of dollars. I just love doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he stole, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. He just, the thrill of it. He yeah. was crazy. I, I had to control him. He yeah. ended up testifying against me. He became wow. the informant. Yeah. Wow. He became the informant. But, but um, he was, uh, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. I'll tell you that. Did you, did you, uh, did you ever think that he would have done that to you or not? Or I never totally trusted him. Because I saw a weakness in him. And I'm going to be honest with Terry. When he, when he became an informant, the family was so, they didn't want the gas business to blow. They told me, Michael, we'll kill him. I said, no. I said, his kids call me Uncle Michael. My kids call him Uncle Larry. Our wives, I was married once before. I said, our wives know each other. I'll deal with him in court. You know, um, I couldn't do it. But I knew, I knew he, would, he was weak. 
you know, in a way. Do you think that's the the, the fact that it was anything he could steal, and it, it, that that was the weakness that he just had yeah, no discipline. You know, I I I didn't I didn't I can't say that I predicted that he would be an informant, but I was concerned that if anything ever happened, I, I might have to worry about him. You know, yeah, and um, and it turned out right. You know, it turned out right in that regard, but. You know, look, it didn't work out good for him in the end. I mean, I, you know, he testified against me in the Giuliani case. We killed him on the stand. Killed him, you know. And it was a big help to me later on because we destroyed the government's main witness against me in the gas case. It was two separate cases. So that's why I was able to make a deal for less time because they were worried I was going to get acquitted again because we destroyed their major witness in a, pre in a prior trial. And what, so, what made you put your hands up, Michael? What was... What was I meet a young girl. Yeah. You know, Terry, look, and this is the truth. That's, that's a destructive life for families. My own family was destroyed, not my wife and kids. But my mother, 33 years without a husband, you know, I can't tell you, the relationship her and my dad had towards Jan was ugly. She blamed him for everything went wrong. My sister dies of an overdose of drugs, 27. My brother's a drug addict for 25 years. Wow. I had to work to keep him alive. If it wasn't for me and my dad, and his, he would have been dead. He got him so much trouble. Uh, just a mess. My younger sister, 41 years old, never mentally, she dies at 41. My whole family was destroyed. And every family of every member of that life, similar fate in some way. All, so I said, I, married, I met this young girl, 20 years old. I fall madly in love with her. She's now my wife, 38 years. I said, am I going to marry her? I'm major target. It's only a time until I go down. So am I going to marry her and leave her alone, have a baby or two, and then she's, I'm, I'm going to lose her? I said, I can't do that. So I have to make a decision how to walk away from the life. Not easy, but I had a whole, again, I'm always making plans to try to do something. But I took a plea really as a, as a, as a uh, what were we going to say, preliminary to walk away from that life. It was part of my strategy. And... Um, I thought I was going to do it quietly. It didn't work out that way because the media went crazy with me, quitting the mafia, blah, blah, blah. And then guys on the street thought I was going to testify. And my father practically, you know, didn't want to talk to me. He was afraid. He didn't know what I was going to do. My boss, contract on my life because now not only did I stop the gas business money, but this guy's walking away. Is he going to cooperate? You know, everybody didn't know what I was going to do. And I was never going to do that. Wow. I was never going to testify against my former associates. Never in a million years would hurt my dad. But the feds came to me when I'm in prison. After I took the plea, I got a 10-year sentence, $15 million restitution, $5 million in forfeitures. I had to give up a lot, right? And uh, the feds come to me, Francis, you know, the words on the street, you're a dead man. We're hearing it from all our informants. You walked away from that life because Life Magazine wrote a huge story, quitting the mafia, right? And... Uh, they said, cooperate with us. We'll put you in a program. We'll get you out of prison. I said, F you guys. I'm not cooperating. I said, I'll worry about the street. Don't worry about it. But then they went a step further, Terry. They stopped putting my name on the witness list of trials that were going on in New York. Wow. My friends. So, and I'm sending word to my dad, don't believe it. I'm not coming in. But everybody says that. And then they end up on the witness stand. You know how many guys, oh, it's not true. And then boom, they're on the witness stand. So they're looking at me the same way. But then what happens, I do five years. Feds gave me a hard time during that five years. Diesel therapy, the whole bit. I get out on parole after five, right? What is uh, diesel therapy? I've never heard of that. Middle of the night, they take you out. 
they throw you on some plane that the marshals confiscated, right? And they take you to another prison, and they put you in lockdown for a week, pick you up again, bring you to another prison, so you never get settled. Good. And they just keep moving you around until you're like so exhausted, hey, whatever you want me to do, you know? But I had months of that. You, your family don't know where you are, security reasons they won't tell you, so you can't get a visit, you can't get a phone call, it's terrible, right? So, uh, but I got through that. So I'm on 13 months. The feds are all over me. Uh, guys coming out to talk to me and hurt me. I had to move once or twice, right? I had to change my whole lifestyle. Couldn't go to a restaurant the same day. You know, I couldn't walk my dog in the morning. I had to be very careful because I knew what these guys were scheming. So now I'm walking out of a bank. No, what happens is they take me into, they come and pick me up. I'm on parole and they bring me to Newark, New Jersey, my good friend, John Riggy, who is the boss of the Jersey crew, is on trial, and they want me to testify against him because he and I had a deal. Every window that came into every apartment in, in New York, we got a piece of. We had a deal, right? And one of the guys that was our partner got uh, convicted on the Giuliani case. He was my co-defendant, and he turned informant. They gave him 30 years. He turned informant. So he told him that I was Riggy's partner, Right. So now this, the prosecutor says, we're putting you on the stand, and if you lie, you're going down for perjury. Wow. So long story short is I'm not going to lie. I said, I did the whole deal, but Riggy had nothing to do with it. That's how I said it. I said, it was my deal. I'll tell you exactly how it went down. I says, and yeah, Hyman, who testified, <clears throat> he was our partner, but he's blaming Riggy. That's not true. They got so mad at me, boom, they send me back. <laughs> they don't put me on the stand. Right? Ten days later, I'm violated on my parole. They throw me back in prison. Put me in solitary for 29 months and seven days. Kept me in a hole, six by eight cell. Told me they're indicting me on another racketeering case. They gave me four years, which was the maximum amount of parole violation. And I spent another three years in prison. They couldn't indict me. They tried, but they couldn't. So now the guys on the street are saying, well, wait a second. He's testifying, but they throw him back in prison. He never shows up in any of the trials. He's not hurting anybody. So now the heat starts to come off, right? Now I get out of jail. I don't see my dad for a number of years. And he's on parole. He sent for me because he wanted to talk to me now. So I go see him. And he says, you really just walked away. I said, Dad, I told you I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I said, why, why didn't you believe that? Well, you know, the talk and this and that. <clears throat> so we patched things up. And then, Terry, I had one more bad thing. I'm finishing up my time, and another guy becomes an informant and implicates me in a number of murders right? Feds come and see me again. This is after I got out of the hole. I only had six months left. He's implicating you in these murders and either cooperate with us because there's other people involved or you're going to get in trouble on the murders. I said, the guy's lying. I said, you're a liar. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. So now when I get out, I told my father, I said, dad, I said, let me tell you this. I said, whoever's mad at me, tell him stop. I said, because if I cooperate with them, everybody's going down. I said, and I'm not. So just tell these guys to leave me alone because Persico was still upset with me, right? He said, don't worry about it. I'll straighten it out. Well, what happens with the guy that was implicating us in the murders? He lied so much, they threw him out of the witness protection program, <laughs> and anything he said, they just tossed out the window. And what happened to him? Did he, uh, did he get his comeuppance? He's, who, who the hell knows where he is? Yeah, and know? I didn't know because if you're not in that program and you're out in the street. Well, they, he must have moved away. I mean, he's not, I haven't heard anything about him. Yeah. But they threw him out for lying. And obviously, for, for our audience, Michael, going through that time, I mean, you know, 
you could have easily got, you know, whacked because of the the people, yeah. of what the government was doing, um, and what what people thought, um, and and I'd say, and I don't know if this is true, but I'd say that you're probably the only person in the world that's ever walked away from the mafia, and you know, gone on to become, you know, a success. Well, I would say this, Terry. Look, there's guys on the street now that testified, went into witness protection program, then were released, and they're they're not back in the neighborhood, don't get me wrong. But I I don't know anybody that's publicly walked away, never had any kind of government protection, never did the program, never put people in prison, and you know, live to be have a life. That know. that's that's what makes you an enigma. Um and there's only one Michael Frenzies. <laughs> There's only one. Well. But 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 you know, for our audience, when you when you go through um when you went through that time when, when they were doing the diesel therapy as you called it, and they were putting you in solitary confinement, you were looking over your shoulder thinking, Am I gonna get somebody who's gonna whack me in the jail? Um how did you cope with that mentally? What were, did you have any sort of coping mechanism or did you have something you did every day to actually get you through it? Well, you know, there's it, a couple of things without making a joke out of it. I had this, um, this when I got out of prison, I had, you know, when you lose your beard, I forget what it's called a little bit, little spots come in. So it's supposedly from stress. So I go see the doctor and the doctor said, do you have a lot of stress? I said, hey, doc, I don't even, I don't know because I've lived a certain way my whole life. I guess that's stress. Yeah. The point is when I was in solitary, Solitary confinement is torture. Yeah, I am dead set against it for young people, right. because what I saw go down in there when guys that couldn't handle it was ter who cut their uh, it was terrible stuff. A lot of guys couldn't handle it. It's torture, and um, me, you know, as a person of faith now, I dove into my Bible during that time, and I had my wife send me a lot because I was. I was concerned about eternity. I'm going to be honest with you. I said, yeah. they told me I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a six by eight cell. I was 40 years old, 41, whatever it was. I said, this is tough, right? So I'm now, now it's starting, okay, where am I going to go when this life is over? So I got very much into my faith. And that's what really got me through that 29 months and seven days wow. in solitary. It really did. And it carried over afterwards. I mean, I'm, I, I believe strongly in my faith now. So, um, I think that was a major, major reason. I was very, very determined and committed to see my wife and children again. So I had that determination in me. And I think I'm just fortunate. I don't, I don't know, Terry. I, I really don't. I can't explain it. It's just who I am. I think, I think uh, lots of people talk about being spiritually enlightened when they're in uh, – dire consequences mm -hmm. or, or things are really bad. You know, they, they say they see the light or they get drawn to, like you said, the Bible or, mm -hmm. or, and, and, you know, use that, uh, as, and use their faith to get them through those dark times. And, uh, I think a lot of people, uh, listening to or, or watching this podcast will resonate with that. Um, lots of people, uh, a lot of people that have done life sentences, um, committed, you know, you know, murders, serious crimes have, have actually said that have actually said they've they've realized when they're sitting there for 20 years 30 years you know wow i shouldn't have gone down that path how can i make amends and then they've found god i know some people don't believe in god some people don't believe in religion but 
Um, I believe in God and I think, um, you know, if that got you through that period of time, and like you said, now today you're still following it. Um, oh, yeah. Well, and, and you've been married for 38 years. I mean, what's your secret to, to, to being happily married for that long? Happy wife, happy life. But no. <laughs> well, you know, for me, fortunate. Listen, I had a, when I married my wife, <clears throat> we were together 18 months prior to that. During that 18 months, I'm on trial for several months. I mean, it was a hectic 18 months. But then um, we get married in, August, in uh, July of 1985. I go to jail in December of 85. So we were only married a couple of months. But I had a, an amazing woman who stuck with me for eight years and stuck with me through all the stuff. There was a real adjustment period when I got home because I, I always say I left a young girl. I came home to a woman. You know, total transition because we had two little babies she had to take care of. It was, and then we had our adjustment period, and we had our struggles and our challenges. And my mentality still part of the street and still trying to make the transition. You don't, when you're so indoctrinated into anything like I was in the street life, it's not easy to make the transition. It doesn't happen overnight. I still had street ways about me, and now I'm in California trying to, you know start life legitimately in a different way and erase some of the methods that I, it was, it was a challenge and she bore it all wow. a really good woman. And I always put her first, you know, even when I was away, what I was concerned about Terry, I didn't want her to have to go to work or anything like that. So fortunately when I made my deal, I had, you know, I gave up a lot, but I was also able to keep a lot. So she didn't have to work for eight years while I was away. That was strong because most marriages break up in prison when you got lengthy time. It's not conducive to a good marriage, obviously. So, um, you know, but we were determined. She's a strong woman of faith, you know, strong Christian. And she said, I made a commitment and I know you love me and I know you do your best, even though sometimes you fall short, but you're doing your best. <laughs> and so her commitment was strong and so is mine. And her mother, another strong woman of faith, uh, said to her the same thing. This guy loves you, and you're going to stick with him through the good and the bad. And so to have somebody like that is, number one, so unique. There's not that many no. women like that in the world. That, no. Uh, and there's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, when you look around, there's so many short marriages, broken marriages, and I think anybody who's had a, a long relationship or, or a, long, a long marriage or a long relationship where they're together with somebody is a testament to, I mean, you know, you... You both have to kind of put up with each other, but obviously you get on your friends. Um, Absolutely. And, and you do anything for that person. Look, we love each other's company. You know, she's my best friend. She's my companion, and I, she looks at me the same way. Um, but we're so opposite in a lot of things. You know, <laughs> we don't agree on a lot of things. Like every time I have something, I say, Cam, what do you think about this? No. <laughs> she don't even want to listen. No. You know? <laughs> and then I have to like, okay, but just listen to me. And then we, oh, okay, you know, because she's, she's a better judge of character than I am, I'm going to be honest with you. Right. And, and she's protective of me like I am of her. And, and she was never involved in my business, but now all my YouTube, she films everything. She's wow. brilliant. She does all the filming. She takes care of my social media platform. So, yeah. you know, if she doesn't like something, she cuts it right out, you know, yeah, but... Yeah. But she's smart. She's smarter than I am in that regard because I tend to be easy. All right, let me talk to this guy. No, you're not talking to him. It's a waste of your time. You're busy. <laughs> you know, so we complement each other well. I think that's also a problem, though, Michael, with uh, with life. If you get any sort of profile or everybody sort of wants a piece of you and, you know, you're, people always tell you what you want to hear. They're always going to tell you they're going to do all this amazing stuff. And, and I'd say probably 90% 
or maybe 80%, maybe I'm being un- unkind, you know, 80% of the people that come to you with these things, it's all bullshit and it's, yeah. and they can't deliver and they're just trying to use you to get them something. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't work out, they yeah. walk off and you're standing there going, well, you know, what's happened? So, uh, yeah. And, and we understand that Terry, because, yeah. you know, people try to get ahead. They figure, they get, I mean, look, you know, while I'm here, there's people I know that are trying to do events with me, speaking events, you know, yeah. but. And I get it, you know. Yeah. Okay, maybe maybe I can capitalize on a situation. I that's just life. I get that. So that doesn't offend me. Mm. She she would be more right. stringent than I am on that. <laughs> but uh, you know, listen. And now you know we have children. We have grandkids together. And um, but look, all I could say is when you make a commitment. And I have to say this: my church, while I was away, Terry, the pastor of the church, I met him maybe three times. He married. I didn't know him well. How that church rallied around my family was just, and these are people that were strangers to me, wow. but they were real. They were sincere. They accepted me. They didn't judge me in any way and accepted my wife and children. And I said, wow, these people are amazing. Mm. And I found that to be true, you know, in the 25 years since I've been released. So my faith grew in prison. This is when I, but it, it got even more when I got out because yeah. I believe it with all my heart. Yeah. I'm not the best person in the world, but I but I am strongly committed to my faith. Amazing. Yeah. And and I'm I love wine, so I'm desperate to try your wine. Um, well, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> we, we we hope to be selling wine here in the UK within the year. Amazing. Um, but I will send you a couple of bottles. Well, if you need if you need any help with that, I've got some good contacts with. Uh, yeah. We, so we can. We, we do can, need help. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Would, Ella's got 12 bottles coming in, so I'm going to make sure you get one. And, and yeah. when I come back, we're going to spend time yeah. together oh, during sure, the tour. Michael, yeah, that'd be lovely. And, and uh, with the pizzas, big fan of pizzas as well. Is it just in America? Terry, I'm going to tell you this. A quick story with the pizza. It's called Slices, by the way. Right. My partner, Tony, everybody, every Italian yeah, has a Tony. lot of Tonys, right? <laughs> we did a lot of things restaurant-wise over the years, yeah. right? He's brilliant restaurateur, brilliant chef. Yeah. So... A couple of years, about, I don't know, three, four years ago, he comes to me. He says, I want to go into the pizza business. We sold a restaurant. I said, Tony, everybody and their brothers at the pizza. What are you going to do different? He said, I'm going to go to Italy for six months. He said, I'm going to create a recipe for a pizza. I have it in my head, and then we'll see. Great. Comes back with a, a recipe for pizza. Delicious, right? Roman-style, airy, crisp crust, delicious, right? And he's very creative with the toppings. We go into the franchise business. We open up seven stores. We get inundated with requests for franchise. And then a guy from France, Frenchman, comes to us, smart guy. He's got a pizza vending machine, right? And he, he uh, wraps it with all the slices, logo, and everything else. He brings it into the country. He says, I did this because your pizza will be perfect for this machine. And I said, pizza out of a machine? It sounds nuts, doesn't it? Come on. <laughs> He says, trust me, we put the pizza in the machine, comes out like it came out of the oven. Wow. Delicious, right? I said, Tony, let's, let's test this. We go to Hyatt Hotels, they take four of them. We go to Tesla, you know, Tesla, their yeah. big uh, offices in San Francisco. Demonstrate, they take nine of them. Everybody that sees the machine wants one. We're going to Vegas now in the casinos. I said, Tony... We're changing our model. We're going to be in the vending business. We're not going to be in the franchise business. And here we are. 
Wow. And, and, I and, want and, one uh, of them machines, Michael. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, you know what it is? I don't know how it is here, but in America, the labor in the hotels, you can't get 24-hour room service anymore, no. only in the very elite hotels. Yeah. Can't get any food. Now you got a 24-hour-a-day restaurant. Right. And good food. And you could put uh, salads in there, sandwiches, everything else. So I've got a bit of trivia for you. You may not know this, but uh, pizza takeaway in England is probably, I'd say, in the top five. Of course. Right? And the, the pizza companies that do it aren't great, in my opinion. Aren't yeah, great. They are not great, right. right? They're okay, right? But there's a couple of pizzas that I've had that are, that are amazing. I can't wait to try yours. And uh, again, you know, that is something that, um, you know, I'd like to be in the pizza business. <laughs> we're we're going to be, we're going to be worldwide. I, I, we really are. I love it. Because I mean, the machine genius. is that good. I'll, I'll send you a video and you'll look at it and you, you won't believe it. But, but the only, like I said, the technology could be amazing, but if the pizza is no good, no, but this terrific. But I'm excited to try the pizza and the wine. Maybe we need a slice of pizza and a, and, a glass, and a bottle of wine, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, but but Michael, I've, I've I've got one thing I wanted to ask you, obviously before we wrap it up, and that is, if you look back on your life, um, is there anything you change? You know, it, it's always a tough question because people said, "Would you have not gone into that life?" And the reason I went into that life was to help my dad. It wasn't to be a gangster. I said, oh, I want to be a gangster. You know, so you, a lot didn't of guys, wait, you didn't walk around going as far back as I can remember. I was No, I wasn't Henry Hill. No, in that regard. <laughs> I did. It was not. I, I Look, if you would ask me at 16, 17 years old, what do you want to be? I want to play center field for the New York Yankees. Mickey Mantle was like my hero. And I was, I was a crazy sports fan, crazy Yankee fan still today. Did not want to be in a mob. But if that was the vehicle to help my father get out of prison, boom. So... Would I have changed that? Probably not. Now, things that happened within that life, I wish didn't happen. Yes, I could say that. So, you know, so I have regrets in that regard. I have regrets with my dad that I, I didn't minister to him enough. I tried, but he was, it was tough. But I, I take the weight for that because I should have been more uh, open about it. But, you know, other than that, I mean, I don't have that many regrets. Great. And what would you like say? Sinatra regrets. I had a few. But yeah. <laughs> Too few to mention. You Sinatra on me. <laughs> Too few to mention. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, if you was going to say anything to the Criminal Connection podcast community, people that are watching and listening to this, what words of advice would you give? Um, if someone said, Michael, you know, I'm just starting out, what would you say? What, what words of wisdom would you give people? Well, listen, you know, to tell... I speak a lot to these young gangbangers. I do a lot in prisons. I have a prison ministry and, and uh, juveniles, right? I tell them, absolutely never get involved in the street. I told my two boys, I said, if you even have a thought about it, I'm going to chain you to the basement until you come to your senses. It's not going to happen in my lifetime because it's a dead-end street. You'll, ne you'll never have a successful family life, and you'll, be, you'll regret it the, your entire life, you know? So that's number one. I tell a lot of these young kids, remember this, we are who we hang out with in this life. You hang with a wrong crowd, you're gonna grow up to be the wrong type of person. You're gonna be judged that way because you are judged by the people you hang with. Absolutely. I tell them also, 
who you are accountable to in life is going to direct the path that you're on. When I was on the street, I was accountable to my oath, to my boss. I was a criminal. Now, you know, I'm accountable to my God first, accountable to my wife and kids. I don't want them to go through heartache, so I don't do the wrong thing. Even though at times I would do it if it wasn't for the fact that I have accountable to the right people and to God. So, you know, I told them that be determined in life, set goals in your life, stick with the right people, and you have a good shot of being successful. Amazing, amazing. But I'm excited to see what you what you do, Michael. Um, and and how many? I know we touched on the on the movie business. How many movies did you make when you was in Hollywood? I made about thirty. Wow. But wow. I'm not proud of any of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> because they were. We were in the era. Of, I, I I don't know how old you are. How old are you? Fifty two. Fifty two. Okay, you might have. Where exploitation films, horror movies were big. Yeah. And so we made about thirty horror movies, and they were horrible horror movies. But we made money with them, you know, right. because. I had a deal with Vestron Video at the time. We had an output deal with them where they would pay us up front. Uh, we would bicycle prints around the country, and we made a lot of money, you know? Um, so that we made about 30 era. films. That was a golden era of movies. It was a golden era of movies, yeah. The biggest movie we made was uh, it was called Savage Streets with Linda Blair. It yeah. became a cult film. She was like a vigilante. I made a film called Mausoleum that I, it was one of the worst movies ever. I mean... It was the first movie that I ever made, but until until about three months ago, I was collecting royalties on it. It's wow. unbelievable, Terry. Wow. And then somebody offered me, I think, forty grand for it, and I just sold it <laughs> off. This is 30, 30, almost 40 years later. Wow. That's a great so, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, And what's happening with your story? Because I know when we spoke last year, you mentioned uh, that you, you, you was obviously putting together. Yes. Was it a TV series or a movie? TV series and a movie, believe it or not. Nice. And pandemic, everything shut down. We had the writer's strike shut down. We had the DJ, it's, everything shut down. And now it's been revived again. Nice. I, when I go home on February 7th, I have a meeting and I think they're going to green light it. Nice. And I don't, I don't want to say too much because this industry, like you know, you never know what happens, right? Yeah. But I, I think this is going to go the distance. I've had so many people approach me over the years. You want to do a movie on your life and this and that? You know how it is. Some of them real, some of them. But my wife never wanted me to do it. Mm. So we don't need that. But I told her, I said, listen, somebody's going to make a movie on this story. I said, if they make it when I'm dead, we don't get anything. I said, you may as well make it when I'm alive. We'll get something out of it, right? You know, because everybody yeah. thinks you make a movie, you're going to become a millionaire. Yeah. It's not for that. No. You know, you know no. how it is. You it's know? hard. It's hard business. It's a but, tough but business. But if you've got a story, which you have, which is great, mm. um, like you said, I think taking control of your destiny is a, a good yeah. thing. Yeah, so we're going to Michael, do I'm excited to see what happens for you in 2024. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank it's you, really Jerry. good to be reconnected yes, with you. Yes, I'm looking Pleasure. forward to having that slice of pizza and that bottle of wine. That's a, that's a guarantee. If you come to America, you get the pizza because we can't bring the machine okay. here yet. Yeah. But the bottles of wine you'll have. Okay, that, amazing. You got. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to the Criminal Connection podcast. Michael Franzese, what an amazing guest. What a legend. Today we discuss things that we've never discussed before. And I hope you've seen um, a side to Michael that you haven't seen before. Again, next week, we have got another amazing guest. So make sure you tune in and make sure you like and subscribe and tell all your friends about the Criminal Connection podcast. And we will see you on the other side. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.